have a good number present this morning. We appreciate the presence of everyone. I hope you've got your Bible with you. And if you have, then turn to Luke chapter 13. Put a marker there. And if you have one, and we will come back to this passage as we leave it, we'll keep coming back to Luke chapter 13. Jesus said in verse 3 of Luke 13, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Drop down two more verses. He said the same thing, the identical phrase again, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Three things come to mind as we read that. First, what's he talking about? What is that all about? Because he said you shall likewise perish. So that raises a question. What prompted this discussion? What made him say anything about this? And what is it in the context that he's talking about when he says, you likewise will perish? Secondly, what does it mean to perish? What's he talking about? Talking about something physical? Is he talking about spiritual separation from God? Or is he talking about something eternal? And thirdly, what is demanded in repentance? He said, you'll perish if you don't repent. So what does that mean? So with that in mind, let's talk about repent or perish. Luke 13, 1 to 5. Again, verse 3 said, if you don't repent, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Again, verse 5, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Let's talk about repent or perish. Three things we're going to look at. Number one, we're going to look at the context. Secondly, we're going to look at the warning. And thirdly, we'll look at the demand. And hopefully with those three things, we have a better understanding of Luke 13, 1 to 5. Let's start with the context. That always helps and enhances our understanding. So the context actually begins back in chapter 12. So let's back up to chapter 12. In chapter 12, Jesus gives a warning to repent. There is a warning and a need for repentance. Let's look beginning at verse 54 and 55 and 56 that he rebukes some present that are hearing him speak for not seeing the time, not able to discern the time. And there's, that's twofold, and I'll get to that in just a second. He said to the multitude, when you see the cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. All right, let's stop there. What, what's he saying? He said, you're smart enough and you can understand that if you see a cloud rising in the west, you say, you know what, that tells me it's going to rain. And you're right, it'll rain. Because that's usually a sign that it's about to rain. Secondly, look at verse 55. And you see the south wind blow and you say there will be hot weather and there is. So the south wind begins to blow and you say, you know what, that's going to blow in some hot weather coming from the south. And you're right, that's exactly right. You're able to look at the clouds, you're able to feel the wind, and you can discern what's going to happen, and you can perceive and comprehend and interpret that correctly, that it's going to rain or it's going to have hot weather. You can see that. Now verse 56, hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. How then do you not discern this time? In other words, Jesus is saying, it's amazing to me, you can look to the sky and say, you know what, it's going to rain. You can feel the wind, so you know what, it's going to be hot weather. 
But you can't look at the evidence and conclude that Jesus is who He claims to be. You see miracle after miracle after miracle, and you can't conclude from that that indeed He is the Son of God. But you can look to the wind and say, you know what, the wind's blowing, it's going to be hot weather. Or the cloud is over there in the west, that means we're about to have some rain. You can do that, but you can't look at the evidence and make the right conclusion. Let's go to another text, and let's turn to Matthew chapter 16, very similar context. Matthew chapter 16, and look at verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees and the Sadducees asked him for a sign, and in verse 2 he answered and said, when it is evening, you'll say it's fair weather, for the sky is red. A little different connotation here. And in the morning you'll see foul weather, is going, uh, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. And it's, that's in the context of them asking for evidence that indeed he is who he claims to be. And he said, I've given you evidence. I've given you abundance of evidence. And you can't conclude from that who I am. But you can discern whether the sky is red in the morning or sky is red at night as to what kind of weather you're going to have. You can understand that, but you can't understand the evidence. Secondly, I see in verses 54, 55, and 56, they fail to see any danger. You can discern the time. That is, you can discern what's going on with the weather and with, with the sky, but you can't discern evidence of who Jesus is, nor can you discern any, uh, any danger that you might be in. Evidence of that will come in chapter 13. But let's go further. Beginning at verse 57 through 59, Jesus tells them you need to turn before it's too late. That's how I know the second part of what I just gave is, is correct. In other words, you can't discern the evidence of who I am, but neither are you able to discern the danger you're in. I don't know that's what he's talking about, because that's what he immediately talks about. Let's look at verse 57. He said, yes, and why even uh, of yourselves do you not judge what is right? And when you go with your magistrate, uh, adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and the officer throw you in prison. And I tell you, you shall not depart from there until you've paid every last might. What's Jesus doing? He's illustrating with settling a debt. In other words, he said, if you, if you, this is kind of a parable or an illustration, that if you had a debt and the person's about to take you into court to settle that debt and cause the, the, the officer to put you in prison, it would be wise of you before you get to the sentencing of that that you try to settle this deal before you get to the court. You start trying to make a plea and you try to make a deal. I'll, I'll pay you so much or I'll, I'll deal with that or I'll pay you later or whatever the case may be. You try to settle that before you're dragged to the court and you're sentenced. In other words, you recognize you need to do it before it's too late. And so his point is, you need to get your life right before God before your sentence. In other words, you need to do it before it's too late. That's his warning. So get the context. The context is, you are not able to discern the danger you're in or who the Messiah is. And furthermore, you need to turn to God before it's too late. Now then, let's go chapter 13, verse 1. This begins our context. Those who heard it, at least some of those who heard it, failed to make application to themselves. Keep in mind what Jesus had just said. You're not able to discern the danger you're in, and let me tell you, you'd better get things right before it's too late. 
And here's what they said. Some of those present, look at verse 1. Those present, there were those present at the season, some who told him about the Galilean whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What on earth is that about? They're not making immediate application to their own needs. They start pointing to others. Now get the picture. Jesus had just said, you need to get your life right before it's too late. Your sin needs to be corrected before it's too late. And some of them speak up, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about, like those Galileans. Like those Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. I want to suggest to you that any pointing to others breaks the force of application to self. Like you go to someone who's guilty of lying and you talk to them about lying. Lying is a sin and they say, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I know somebody who does that. You see, if you can point your finger to another direction, that takes the force off of application to yourself. So what is this story about? Verse 1. Well, we're not given any more information, any more details. Then the fact that there were some Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, or the footnote says mixed with their sacrifices. What's that about? Well, we don't know the details of that. But the Galileans were Herod's subjects. And there had been a quarrel between Herod and Pilate, according to chapter 23 of the book of Luke and verse 12, that they became friends where they were enemies before. So there had been a quarrel between the two of them. Some suggest that perhaps this is what happened, that Pilate's officers took the worshipers by surprise and then he mixed their blood with their sacrifices. I know he mixed their blood with their sacrifices, that's what Jesus said. But did he catch them by surprise? That would either be secular history or speculation. But some suggest that's probably what happened. That here are some that were in Herod's jurisdiction because of this, this quarrel they had, that he catches these worshipers, these Galileans by surprise, and that he takes their blood and mingles it with their sacrifices, basically to ridicule them. Now, why mention that story? Why, why would they mention that story here? Why would some in the audience bring up this story? Oh, Jesus, you talk about getting things right before it's too late. I, I know what you're talking about, like the Galileans. Why do they mention that? Now Matthew Henry suggests that maybe this is a case in point. A case of those that are taken away by death less and when they least expected it, and we need to be ready just like they should have been ready. And so some suggest that maybe they're saying, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about people who were caught by surprise and they were not quite ready and, and when they least expected it, they had to meet their maker. Maybe so. It is more likely that it is the pointing to people who suffered a tragedy as evidence of their sinfulness. And the evidence in the context is going to point to that. That it's those wicked people who need to turn, not us. That seems to be the point being made. Jesus, you just said we need to turn before it's too late. And I know what you're talking about. You're talking about people like the Galileans who should have turned. The fact that their blood was mingled with their sacrifices is evident indeed that they were great sinners. And now let's talk about this concept that sin as a punishment is punished in this life. Because that's the concept. We see that in John 9. We see that in the book of Job. Seemingly we see that right here in this context. The idea is that sin is punished in this life and if someone suffers, that's evident that they are terrible sinners. I haven't suffered yet. Therefore, I must not be a terrible sinner. 
I want to suggest you Job's friends thought that, beginning in chapter 4. They thought, Job, you're suffering, that is evidence you've done something terribly wrong. I don't know what it is, but you've done something terribly wrong. The idea is that those that were killed, like the Galileans, is proof that they were terrible sinners. And thus, if it hasn't happened to me, I must be all right. Notice what Jesus said at verse 3. Verse 2, he said, do you suppose that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered such things? That makes me think that's what they had in mind. Are, are you saying that, by bringing this question up to me about the Galileans, are you saying to me that these are worse sinners than all the other Galileans? And Jesus' answered is, verse 3, I tell you, no. No, they're not worse sinners. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He cites another case. Jesus brings this one up at verse 4. He said, what about the 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? What was that about? Again, we have little detail. Lightfoot suggests, and he conjectures, that it was located near the pool of Siloam. That would make sense. We know very little about the details. But the point is, by bringing that up, is they didn't suffer that because of their sin. Notice again at verse 4, do you think those upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and were killed, they were worse sinners than all those who dwelt in Jerusalem? And that's when he says at verse 5, I tell you, no, no, they're not worse sinners. But unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now let's go to verse 3 and verse 5. In these two cases that were brought up, Jesus takes those cases and said, no, that doesn't mean they were worse sinners. And then he targets their own sin. Notice he said, it's you that are the sinner. You are the one you need to be concerned about. You are the one that needs to repent. You bring up the Galileans, are they worse sinners? No, I tell you that you need to repent, verse 3. Well, what about the, those, of, do you think maybe those of the Tower of Siloam, those 18 were worse sinners? No, you are the one that you need to be concerned about. So now I know something of the context Let's talk about the warning. I know what Jesus had said before this. I know what prompted this discussion. I know what was seemingly in their mind. And I know the answer that Jesus gave. Now let's talk about the warning found here in this text. Jesus gave the warning, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Just like those Galileans, just like those on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, you will perish. In other words, this perishing is the too late or the or else that he talked about in chapter 12. But in chapter 12, he had said that you need to settle this before you get into the settlement of the court, before your sentence. This is the or else, the perishing. So what is the perishing? That's the warning we want to focus on. What does he mean by, unless you repent, you'll perish? What's he talking about? What's the danger here? What's the warning involved? Well, whatever's involved in verse 3 and verse 5, it's worse than physical death. He brings up a case, or they bring up a case, concerning the Galileans. They suffered physical death. Pilate mingled their blood with their sight. They were killed. Then in verse 5, 4, he brings up the, the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. They fell on them and they killed them. They were physically dead. But when Jesus raises the question of perishing, it's something worse than physical death of verse 3 and the physical death of verse 4 and 5. Let's notice in Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 28. Jesus said, Fear not him that is able to kill the body, 
but him that is able to kill both soul and body in hell. The danger of perishing is something far worse than physical death. He is not saying, unless you repent, you'll also die like they die. You'll perish like they perish, but the perishing he's concerned about is something worse than physical death. Let's go to another passage that makes that comparison. And this time in Hebrews chapter 10. The one who despised Moses' law died without mercy. Verse 26 and 27 of the book of Hebrews chapter 10. In other words, he was stoned to death. He died without mercy. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he should be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified an unholy thing and done insult to the Spirit of grace? In other words, the one who sins willfully, verse 26, is going to be worse facing something worse than physical death. The perishing is worse than physical death. But here's something else. The perishing is something that is eternal and everlasting. When Jesus said, if you don't repent, unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. He's talking about suffering something eternal and everlasting. Let's go to Matthew 25 and verse 46. This is the judgment scene where the right and the left are being separated. The sheep and the goats are being separated. He brings all of that to a close in verse 46 by saying, these shall go away into everlasting punishment, those on the left, but the righteous, those on the right, into life eternal. Some are going to go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Here's our focal point. I want you to see it's eternal and everlasting. I want you to notice that he talks about everlasting punishment. That's hell. And then he talks about eternal life, that's heaven. There are some, even of our own brethren, who want to take hell and say when it's eternal, what that means is you go there for a little while and then you go out of existence. You are annihilated. Or maybe even before you get there, you're annihilated. There are various versions of that. And that's what's eternal. And yet I want you to notice the same word that is translated everlasting is the same word that is translated eternal. What I do with one, I do with the other. Do you go to heaven for a little while and then you go out of existence? No one believes that. They think you go to heaven and stay forever and forever and forever. All right, if that's what heaven is, something that is eternal, everlasting, so is hell something that is eternal and everlasting. That's the perishing Jesus is talking about. Let's go to Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11. And I want you to notice what lasts forever and forever is not going out of existence forever and forever, but it is a torment. Look at verse 11. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Now I want you to notice something here. That expression, forever and forever. Revelation 4 says, God lives. Same expression, forever and ever. What does that mean? That means God lives an endless future. There is no end to God's living. He lives forever and forever. That's the same expression here. The torment is forever and forever. That's an endless future. It is eternal. It lasts forever and forever. That's what Jesus warns about. He's warning about, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish, eternally perish. But let's go further. We're trying to talk about the warning. What's he warning about? The perishing. It's something worse than death. That's bad enough. Like those 18 and like those Galileans. It's something that is eternal and everlasting, but it's something that involves torment and pain and anguish. Now let's get a list of some things that we find uh, that summarizes the teaching on hell. We're not going to take the time to read every passage, 
But I want to get a summary of what the Bible teaches on hell. To focus on the torment, the anguish, and the pain of hell. That's what Jesus means by perishing. For example, the Bible calls it a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Picture a lake that you can imagine that every drop of water is a flame of fire burning and raging and you're cast in it to live forever and forever. It's called a lake of fire. Furthermore, it's called a fiery furnace or a furnace, uh, a furnace of fire. Some would be cast into a furnace of fire, very similar to the lake of fire. It is also called a flaming fire. Jesus is coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God. Furthermore, it's called a baptism of fire. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Can you be, imagine being immersed in flames of fire? It's what hell is described as being. It's an unquenchable fire, a fire that shall never be quenched. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's unending. Verse 43, verse 48 of Mark chapter 9. A lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Furthermore, it's described as weeping and wailing and the grinding and the gnashing of teeth. Moaning and wailing because of the pain and the anguish. It was a place that was prepared for the devil. A punishment that is just for the devil. That is, it's fair for the devil. That it's right for the devil. That doesn't mean he's the only one that receives it. It's just fair and right. It's described as outer or blackness of darkness. Matthew 8 verse 12 and 25 and in verse 30. And it's a torment as we've already noted that lasts forever and forever and forever. We're trying to describe what's involved. What is it that's involved in this perishing? It involves anguish and torment and pain. But it is for those that are disobedient. When Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. This perishing, this torment, this eternal hell is for those that are disobedient. So let's list the roll call of those who are going to be the list of those who will be in hell. Who is it that's going to perish? First of all, the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41 says, this was a place prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, God created it and prepared it for the devil himself. And yet I could go there if I'm not living right, according to Matthew chapter 25. In fact, that's the context of verse 41 of Matthew 25. These shall go away into everlasting punishment that's prepared for the devil and for his angels. Secondly, who's going to be there? Unbelievers, Revelation 21 and in verse 8. Those atheists and those agnostics, those who reject the evidence of God, unbelievers are going to be there. That's not all. Here are the liars. All liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and with brimstone. Those who are disobedient, those who have obeyed not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to be punished with everlasting destruction. Even religious people will be there. Those who say to him, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out demons. In thy name but done many wonderful works. You'll say, you're professing to them, I never knew you. You who work lawlessly. Those were religious people. You cry out, Lord, Lord. Not only religious people, moral people will be there. Those who didn't obey the gospel. They may have been good moral people. Had some good principles about it. They don't lie, they don't steal. Not only that, there are going to be some Christians who are there. Like Christians who are apostates. Those who sin willfully after they've received the knowledge of the truth. Trample underfoot the Son of God and count the blood of the covenant by which you are sanctified and unholy. Those Christians who are lukewarm, who are neither cold nor hot. They're not on fire for the Lord, but they haven't quit the Lord altogether. But they're kind of lukewarm. It's kind of in the middle. 
Not only that, but also those who are indifferent. Like in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus would say, depart from me, they'd say, well, when, when, when did we see you hungry and not feed you? When did, were you in prison and we didn't visit? When, when, when did we not do what we were supposed to do? They seem to be indeed indifferent. I know the context. I know what prompted all this discussion. I know what Jesus had said, and I know how they didn't make application to themselves and what their misconception was, and I know the warning of perishing he's talking about. Let's talk thirdly about the demand. Because the demand of verse 3, verse 5, the emphasis, except you repent, emphasis is on repentance. That's the demand. Jesus is saying what you need to do is repent. That's what he'd said in chapter 12 before he ever got to chapter 13. He didn't use the word repent, but he was telling you need to change before it's too late. They didn't think it applied to them. And so Jesus had a way of bringing it back to them. You're pointing your finger to the Galileans. I can point to the uh, 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. But they weren't the ones that I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about you. So let's talk about its meaning. What does it mean to repent? I find sometimes, in talking particularly young people who are questioning whether they're at the age of accountability or not, and parents sometimes solicit help, and, and the question is, do they understand what they're doing? And you ask them, what does it mean to believe in Christ? They usually have that. And you ask them what it means to be baptized, they usually have that. But you ask them sometimes, what does it mean to repent? And they have a hard time explaining that. So let's talk about what repentance means. What is repentance? Here's a definition. This is from Vine's Expository Dictionary. So why don't we even cite dictionaries and, and lexicographers? Because words are vehicles of thought, and if the word doesn't have a meaning, then the words are useless. The word repent has a meaning. It comes from a word metanoio. You say, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. The word literally means to perceive afterward. What's that about? comes from the word meta, after, implying a change, or to, and to perceive, that is, the mind. It means that there's something in the mind that's different afterwards. As opposed to the word pronoio, which means to perceive before, beforehand. That's wisdom. When I see here's a problem, and before I commit that, I back away and say, you know what, that, I shouldn't do that. That's wisdom. That's pronoio. This is metanoia. That is, it has to do with perceiving or thinking differently afterward to change one's mind or purpose, always in the New Testament involving a change for the better, an amendment. Let's go further. This is from Strong. He says that same word means to think differently afterwards, to reconsider. So I was tempted and I did it and then after that, I think differently. You know what? I shouldn't have done that. I have a change of thought. I consider afterwards. Now here's a little longer definition from Vincent. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to focus on this part. M.R. Vincent, lexicographer, says that this word repent is a compound word, which means after or with, along with the word meaning to perceive or to think as a result of perceiving or observing. In this compound, the preposition combines the two meanings of time and change. 
which may be denoted by after or different. In other words, repentance, therefore, primarily is an afterthought or different from the former thought than a change of mind which issues in regret and in a change of conduct. I say, amen. Now, I know what it means. It means literally to perceive after. So let's talk about the elements involved. When we talk about repentance, sometimes that word can, can have a limited meaning, and then sometimes it's used with reference to things that are encompassed by that. And let's see what we mean by that. First of all, it involves godly sorrow. That's actually what produces repentance. So let's talk about godly sorrow. What is godly sorrow? We talk about it, but we don't take time always to define that. Godly sorrow is sorrow that is directed toward God. 2 Corinthians 7 and in verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but salvation of the world produces death. Here's what I want you to see. That sorrow for godly sorrow produces repentance. Now, godly sorrow involves deep contrition. This is sometimes missing in, in the concept of repentance. The repentance isn't just a kind of like, oh, I'm sorry. But it's deep contrition. Let's notice a couple of passages that may help us. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 7, the fornicator who was not repenting as he should, when he finally came to repentance... I'm going to paraphrase chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. Paul tells the Corinthians, let up on applying pressure to him now. Forgiving him and embrace him, lest, notice this at verse 7, he be swallowed up with too much sorrow. In other words, his contrition was deep and embrace him so that he's not overwhelmed with his sorrow. That tells me there was deep contrition on his part. But let's go further. Let's go to Psalm 51. I want you to see this deep contrition. This is not kind of, well, I got caught in sin, and I ought to tell people, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I did, I did that, and I'm sorry, and then I go on my way, almost bragging about what I've done, or I'm not embarrassed, or I'm not ashamed at all, but deep contrition involves deep sorrow. Psalm 51, this is where the psalmist, David, is talking about his own sin with Bathsheba. When he finally came to recognize that he had done wrong and acknowledges it and embraces God's forgiveness, notice verse 17. He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and a contrite heart. That is, here is humility and deep sorrow that he had because of his sin. While you're in Psalm, back up to Psalm 34. Those that fear God are those that have a broken heart. That again is involving this deep contrition. Isaiah 57, we noted this recently, verse 15, Wednesday night, we'll notice 66 in verse 2, the Lord shows favor to those who are of a contrite heart. Again, that involves deep contrition. A case in point was where Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He didn't just say, sorry, guess I shouldn't have done that. But there was deep sorrow. So godly sorrow produces repentance. All right, here's another element involved. The change of mind, that's the repentance itself. There is the change of mind. So deep sorrow, deep contrition, godly sorrow produces that change of mind, that thinking differently afterwards. All right, let's go further. That leads then, the result of repentance is a change of life. Now let's talk about this change of life. Repentance involves a turning from evil. Here are some lexicographers. I won't read every word of this, but Thayer says it means to change one's mind for the better heartily, to amend with abhorrence of one's past sins. To change. 
a change of ways. Vine says to change the mind involves both a turning from sin and a turning to God. Kettle says it suggests repentance involves turning away from evil. A.T. Robertson said that Jesus calls upon the people to repent. John did not call the people to be sorry, but to change their mental attitude and their conduct. So by definition, it means that there is a change of conduct. I want to compare two passages. Turn it with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 41. You might underline a word if you don't have it underlined. And I want you to see that repentance involves or leads to a change involving a ceasing of sin. Or there is no repentance. Let's get this point established. Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh, the text says, this is Jesus' own statement, repented at the preaching of Jonah. If you don't have that underlined, underline that in your Bible. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. You might make a marginal note that Jonah 3.10 doesn't use the word repent, but here's what Jonah 3.10 says, they turned from their evil way. There's your definition of what they did. Jesus said when they turned from their evil way, they repented. That means when they repented, they turned from their evil way. They ceased from their sin. Let's go further and establish that a little further. Matthew 3 and in verse 8, John was preaching and calling for people to bring forth fruits of repentance. Now let me illustrate. Here's a person who has not been assembling as they should and they come forward and they said, I'm repenting of that and I'm acknowledging that and I'm asking God and you to forgive me. And they miss the next five services and the next ten services. There hasn't been fruit showing repentance. There's, There's nothing showing. I've made a change person been lying and they repent of that and then they go telling another lie and then another lie there's no fruits repentance has fruits there's a couple of passages I want you to take note of 2nd Corinthians 12 if there's not a change there is no repentance go to 2nd Corinthians 12 notice this 2nd Corinthians 12 verse 20 I fear lest when I come this is Paul saying when I come to Corinth I fear that when I come I will not find you as I wish such as, uh, as you do not wish, lest there be contentions and jealousies and outbirth of rest, etc. Now verse 21. And lest when I come, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented. You see the point? I'm afraid I'm going to find you continuing to do what you were supposed to quit, and I'm, what I'm afraid I'm going to find is you've not repented. Those are synonymous phrases. So when they do not repent, they didn't change. Or when they don't change, there's no repentance. We'll not take the time, but look at Revelation chapter 9, 20 and 21. You see the same concept. When they didn't change, there's no repentance. But I'm more interested in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 suggests the whole chapter, shall we continue in sin? And the answer is, God forbid, in no way. Certainly not. The rest of the chapter is devoted to arguing that you don't continue in sin. Now notice at verse 4, that we have been raised to walk in newness of life. This is a new and a different life. That involves a change of life. So what's involved in repentance? Well, repentance is a change, technically it is a change of mind. That's what repentance is. Somebody said, well, tell me exactly what repentance. It means to perceive afterward. It's a change of mind. That's what it means. It is prompted and by godly sorrow. So this godly sorrow, deep contrition, produces a change of mind which results in a change of life. So in other words, here's a person been lying and they come to recognize, you know what, God hates lying. 
God hates that, Proverbs 6. And I'm deeply sorry that I did that. That results in a change of his mind, which then results in a change of their life. That's what's involved in repentance. Now let's talk about its need. I know its meaning. I know its elements. What's the need? Let's go back to Luke chapter 13 one more time. Verse 3, Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Verse 5, he said identically the same thing. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The need is you repent or you burn forever in the fires of hell. That's what he's saying. You repent or you burn forever in the fires of hell. There are times Barnes captures the thought better than anyone else. And that he did here in Luke 13. Listen carefully. He said, we, commenting on Jesus' statement in verse 3, verse 5, he said, we must repent. We must all repent or we shall perish. No matter what befalls others, we are sinners. We are to die and we shall be lost unless we repent. Let us then think of ourselves rather than of others. And when we hear of any signal, uh, uh, signal calamity happening to others, let us remember that there is a calamity in another world as well as here. And that while our fellow sinners are exposed to trials here, we may be exposed to more awful woes there. Woe there is eternal. Here a calamity, like that produced by the falling of the tower, is soon over. I like what he says. Here is the need. The need is you repent. It applies to you. No matter what happened to anybody else, it applies to you. Let me ask you, what about you? Have you been putting off becoming a Christian? Have you been putting that off? Say, I want to be a Christian. I'm putting that off, though. I know I need to repent, and I need to make a change, and that repentance leads to a change of life, and I want to become... But I've been putting that off, and I'm not sure when. Do you understand the context of this passage, the warning of the passage, and the demand of this passage? Are you a Christian who needs to correct sin? Need to repent? What, what, what are you waiting on? Are you having a hard time giving up something that you know this is wrong, this is something I'm doing, and it's, it's wrong, but I'm having a hard time giving that up? Do you feel like you're weak and lacking in faithfulness? Do you recognize you're taking dangers with your soul? Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. We know the context. We know the warning. We know the demand. There may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?